Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you from the mountains of Utah, where the days are getting shorter and the nights colder. A quick note for those of you who don't follow me on social media. A few weeks ago, I ended up in the hospital with an extreme arrhythmia caused by a previously unknown birth defect. I had minor heart surgery, and I am now mostly recovered. While I was in the hospital, my brother Sam died of complications with his own surgery. So, uh, it's been a rough month. My consistency may be a bit worse than usual over the winter. Uh, hopefully not. I don't have a lot more to say about it right now. Uh, maybe in the future. On a lighter note, I still plan on being at Brandon Sanderson's Dragonsteel Con in Salt Lake City on November 14th and 15th. I'll have books and swag to sell and be available to chat at my own booth. Hope to see some of you there. Now on with the show. My guest this week is writer, artist, and illustrator Ursula Vernon. Ursula and I talk about gardening, Ursula's love of anthropomorphic animals, and writing the books we want to read. We discuss just how weird early science fiction and fantasy could be, and what happens when a beloved series goes off the rails. We also dig into the business side of what we do, travel, making money, and the complications of printing and self-publishing. Enjoy my conversation with Ursula Vernon. Well, hey, Ursula, thanks for joining me today. Delighted to be here. I was hoping that we could start by you telling me a little bit about your garden. Oh, goodness. Uh, it's, uh, well, at the moment, it has kind of gotten away from me because it's that time of year when it's just too damn hot to go outside and work in it much. So uh, I go out, I harvest tomatoes and cucumbers, I shake my fist at the weeds, I go back inside. But uh, most of the time, it's I, I spend a lot of time out there in spring and fall. I will write out there. It's uh, I love it. I, I, yeah, it's probably like my major hobby other than, you know, writing books, which is sort of my job, I guess. <laughs> right. No, that's rad. I, uh, yeah, I'm always jealous of people who can write outside because I've tried writing outside before and I always feel like there is something tiny annoying me, whether it's a little tiny gnat buzzing around in my screen or, or whether it's a glare that makes it so I can't see my screen. It just, it just bugs the crap out of me. Yeah, the uh, the in autumn it's a lot harder because the mosquitoes are out. There's this glorious period in spring before the mosquitoes hit when it's lovely, and then you know, and I can douse myself with DEET, but DEET uh, strips paint, so it wears the uh, the oh. letters off my keyboard if I DEET up and try to type. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I grew up in Ohio, which has really bad mosquitoes. Uh, I grew up right up near the lake, and man, those that like I live in a high desert in Utah now, and we barely get mosquitoes. And oh, it's that's like the biggest change I love. Oh man, I I envy that. Yeah, I uh, 
I lived in Minnesota for quite a while and uh, we had lots of mosquitoes there and it was lovely when I lived in Arizona and, and Phoenix, we, we had very little in the mosquito department. Now I live in North Carolina, which is a swamp. So yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That's uh that can be a bit, that can be a bit overwhelming because uh, when you're like, uh, one of the things I love about out East is it's so green all the time. Oh yeah. And I love, and I love the greenery. I love being out in the greenery, but gosh, the, the mosquitoes, the moment the sun starts going down, those things just strip the skin from me. Oh yeah. I, uh, uh, the worst place I've ever been for that is actually the Gulf coast of Texas. Uh, high Island, Texas is right on the Gulf. And they had the kind of mosquitoes that would, you know, treated 90% DEET as a garnish and would take your blood, then your car keys kind <laughs> of things. They were, they were dire, but uh, yeah, it's bugs, man, bugs. Right. See, I, uh, I grew up, um, I grew up with my parents, like they really liked the idea of like the whole kind of having your kids learn to homestead thing. And so we had a massive garden and I hated that garden so <laughs> Like going out in the middle of the summer to try to weed the stupid thing. Oh and, yeah. You know, trying to weed like try like my dad, oh, I'm gonna teach you how to thin corn. Yeah, dad, there's video games to play. Like <laughs> I, I have friends doing fun things. Why would I do this on Saturday? Oh yeah. Uh it's it is a a labor of love, and if you don't love it, then it's basically just really hard work. <laughs> and uh, all the people who are like, you can totally feed yourself out of the garden. Like, how many children do you have doing unpaid labor to pull that off? Oh, that, that was definitely how it was when I was growing up. I was the youngest of six. And so we just, we had one of those big old uh, chest freezers that we would fill with, you know, we would, we would harvest a bunch of corn and cut it off the cob and freeze it for all winter and all that stuff. And, oh man, like, like I appreciate it much more as an adult. Like I, I, I have my little garden. I putter around on it. I love my raspberries and I know how to do all this stuff, but also like when you're an adult, you have the choice. Oh yeah. You know, if I want to be like, oh, I'm not gardening this summer, I'll do it next year. I can do that. But when you're a kid, you don't get that option. Yeah. And, and there are parts of the year when I'm just like, no, it is, it is not worth it to garden here and vegetables that I, I will not try to grow. Like I don't, I don't have the space for corn. I don't bother with uh, squash or pumpkins or anything like that. Cause it's like, if it touches the ground, the bugs get it. And uh, yeah, it's, there's a lot to be said for puttering as opposed to subsistence. <laughs> right, right. Uh, There's a, a big difference there. So you are very well known for your kind of your love of anthropomorphic animals for your comics and your writing. And I, I was kind of curious, where did that come from? I'm not sure. I, I grew up uh, loving talking animals. I, I read Watership Down and at like, you know, I don't know, seven and was like, this is the greatest book that has ever existed in the history of the world. You mean the trauma didn't destroy you at that age? Oh, no, no. I was the one. I, I always wanted to check the movie out, you know, and the movie is is... Yeah, like uh, how many uh, people were traumatized by General Woundwort with the froth and the drool and the blood? And no, I wanted to watch it every single week. Uh, my parents were eventually like, "Can we please just anything else, please?" <laughs> uh, and and read the book, God knows how many times. And but and these days, if I had wanted to 
read, you know, dozens of talking animal books as a kid. They have them. They've got, you know, warriors about cats and, and guardians about owls and God knows what else. Uh, in the early 80s, we did not have that. We had Watership Down and uh, Wind in the Willows. And that was about it. Uh, you could read the Black Beauty or the Black Stallion books, which are not talking animals and also get really weird towards the end. Uh, you could tell when they were just handing Walter Farley money and being like, your contract says you'll write another book. And he's like, fine, this one's about aliens that are really into horse racing for some reason. And uh, yeah. So uh, part of why I got into uh, writing was that there were no more books of the kind that I really wanted to read. So I, I had to write them and I, there was Narnia. Narnia was the other big one. So, yeah. I don't actually remember when it came out, but, uh, but for me, I guess it probably was Redwall. Yes. Redwall is awesome, but it was, it was way after that. Sadly. I, I, I mean, I loved those and I, I did love, I loved Watership Down. I loved, um, I only read one of the, I, the first the Black, Black Stallion. I didn't even know there were sequels. Oh God, there's like 30 or 40 of them. Yeah. Really? Yes. And, and they start out as like, okay, you know, Black Stallion. Okay. And then eventually, you know, he wins a race and then there's another thing and he wins another race. Okay, great. All right. Uh, now he has his son and okay. So the, the Black Stallion's son, will race and we can get a couple books out of that and then okay maybe this other horse we can get a few books out of and we are running out of the plot ability of horse racing so aliens yeah vampire bats yeah shipwreck okay voodoo sure why not ghosts let's do it and it like ends with the apocalypse and the black stallion is apparently actually the incarnation of the horsehead nebula or something and then uh and then it's armageddon the fo- you know dude is is trying to call his family and the lion goes dead and that's the end of the book and i'm like you did not want to write another book. You were just like, I am done with this series forever. That is so weird. It's a, uh, yeah. It, it is so surreal. Yes. Oh man. I should have asked swearing on this podcast. Is that okay? Oh, yeah, it's totally fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. That's so bizarre. I like, th- there are times when I forget how incredibly weird some of the books were that I read as a kid. Cause when you read something as a kid, you just kind of accept it. It's normal that this, uh, this must be what books are like. Yeah. I, that's such a bizarre phenomenon. I, you know, I, I don't really think about that often because like when I'm writing, like I try to keep, I, I try to keep like, so like so strict in terms of the rules of the universe that I've created and, and trying to stay within those rules and write something very approachable to new readers, all that stuff. And it, it didn't used to be like that. It used to be so much of just you know, throwing crap on the page just to see what people liked. Yeah. And, uh, and it, I think it's even worse for kids books because there's less, there's a very, whatever you can get away with and okay. It can be fantastical or bizarre and no one cares that much as long as it looks cool. Uh, I mean like all like James and the giant peach, like what kind of a pitch is that there's a giant mutant peach and a bunch of talking insects and they sail around in a giant peach carried by seagulls. Uh, and a book I had as a kid from like 
I think it was from like 1914 or something. Um, uh, the Wonderful Electric Elephant. And I had this because th- there were old books in the house. And this was one that was for kids. And it's the story of this guy who uh, who encounters a mechanical elephant that you can ride around in. And so he rides around the world having adventures and it's 1914. So it's all like bizarre and racist and just, but it gets weirder and weirder and weirder. And then the elephant can fly. And then they're like, okay, let's use the elephant to stampede into, you know, the, the forbidden city in China and kill a bunch of people. And you're like, wait, what the, what, what, what? what is going on here? And, uh, but yeah, or the Swiss family Robinson, which is deeply messed up. And I read like 800 times. I loved that book as a kid. Oh God. Yeah. Like, I like, and the, the book and the movie, um, I just like, I, I rewatched that movie until it wore out. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I did a live tweet of rereading it, uh, a while back. And that book is, like it's not even how improbable the animals are. Everything is just so improbable. You're just like, okay, okay, and you uh, you snuck up on the iguana by whistling to it, and you hypnotized the iguana, and then you stabbed it through the nose. Okay, yeah, sure, why not? Uh, and just inc- it goes on like that for ages. Okay, we've we've. Uh, tamed a buffalo by or we tamed a, a a penguin by tying it to a flamingo and i'm like i i'm just about certain that is not how you tame a penguin i <laughs> i just gonna go out on a limb so yeah right i i remember um i remember when i was i don't know probably 13 or 14 um somebody gifted me like the collected works of edgar Allan poe oh yeah and i just i decided i was gonna read it from beginning to end and and the thing is, is that we're already familiar with Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe being super weird, right? Like from all his famous stuff, his less famous stuff is even weirder. Like it, like there, there's that, like there, there's like his his. Uh, I think it might be his longest work is like a it's a very long novella. I think that it, it's like all about this crazy uh, adventure in like the South Atlantic or something like that. It's the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. Yeah. Yeah. And it, like it it just ends like abruptly with the guy like rowing into like a fog bank. Yeah. <sighs> it's it, yeah. And uh, uh, I had one of those collections too. And I, I think they were like very, very trendy. The, the, you know, the complete works of Edgar Allan Poe and Charles Dickens and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Mark Twain. And, you know, they had the handsome sort of leather bound things. So you would give them to kids who read too much. Uh, for Christmas, and some of them are like, "Okay, yeah, Poe, this is fine, this is fine." Others, I'm like, "Okay, this was your attempt at humor. You're not great at it." <laughs> I'm still reading it, but huh? Right. Ah, uh, some of that stuff can get so strange. Like, and and it's weird because we think like modern day, you know, like we feel like maybe we're like kind of uh, used to strange because we watch so many superhero movies and. We've got all these bizarre things that are in the media now in pop culture that we just take as, oh, this is fun. This is what we watch and enjoy. And you can look backwards and be like, wow, those people were even weirder than we were. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's it, it's amazing. We, we are not uh, as avant-garde, I think, as we think we are sometimes. Uh, or, or maybe knowing what is 
possible scientifically has sort of moved in the boundaries a bit of uh, what we uh, consider, you know, doable. Uh, I, God, I, I, like China Mieville uh, and the new weird stuff is brilliant and it's weird and I like it, but it's a different kind of weird. It's, it's still, you know, like, yes, okay, there's, there's icebergs in the sky. Okay, that's, that's odd. Or there are bug headed women or whatever. Yes, there's a lot of weird, but it's, it's just not so utterly batshit the same way. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Now, now, did I see right that you studied anthropology? I did. I have a degree in it for my sins. And uh, as you can see, I am working in my field. Lots. Yeah, no. Well, so what was what was kind of the direction you were looking at when you decided to major in anthropology? Uh, well, I really liked the Indiana Jones movies, <laughs> and uh, I I thought it was in, I thought archaeology was really interesting, and that was sort of the the uh, the in route roads. Uh, you, if you wanted to study archaeology, you you started with an anthropology degree, kind of thing, and uh, about maybe two thirds of the way through it, I was like, I just don't like people that much. This seems like it involves a lot of people. (laughs) And, uh, but at that point, you know, I was most of the way to the degree. So I figured I might as well finish it. (laughs) It, It's so funny how there's like a, a grouping of degrees in particular um, that, uh, and, and I include myself as an English major. I definitely include English majors in there. That the degree itself, like you can go into something very specific for that degree, but oftentimes, uh, maybe most of the time, that degree is just like kind of a generic. Yes, I graduated college. Uh, see also my classics minor, and uh, yes, I I. It would have been a, ma- a double major, except uh, they would have had. I would have had to take a year of either Latin or Greek, Oof. and uh, I might have been able to handle Latin, but Greek is Greek is really hard, I, <laughs> and I'm just not very good with languages. So, uh, uh, same. I, I did four years of Latin in high school, and only because I loved the professor, and I it just almost it almost killed me because I I've always struggled with memorization trying to remember anything is terrible and you know that's what all latin is is memorizing vocabulary and, and the problem is i would love to be a person who is good at languages because i i i think it's super valuable it's just i'm so bad at it uh, it's i i've tried you know duolingo and immersion stuff and nothing like after i took four years of japanese and i remember a couple of the characters and some nouns and one or two swear words and yeah (laughs) i i'm uh i'm i'm the exact same as you i just do not i i don't grasp them i'm not good at just keeping that in my head my wife is really good at that and it frustrates the crap out of me because like we went to uh, uh france earlier this year and uh we're in paris and she immediately picks up on just a few of the little phrases that everybody uses. But then, but she also picks up on the cadence perfectly to the point where when we walked into a drugstore and she said bonjour to the people you know behind the counter, they started talking to her in French and then would look at me and immediately switch to English. <laughs> yep. Yep. And it's like, how do you, how do you, how are you able to grasp this so quickly? You know, I, I like to think I'm good at language because I write for a living, but 
I'm not, apparently. No, I, I think in my case, uh, my hearing's pretty bad, so I think it's like an audio processing thing. I do better with written words. People talk to me, and like half the time in English, I'm like, can you repeat that? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I went to uh, uh, France with my mother, who had uh, spoke French, for high school French, basically, and every single person there that I encountered spoke better English than I spoke French, God knows. And I tried and every, you know, and basically memorized like three phrases, which were, excuse me, do you speak English? And, uh, uh, someone who was there said the, the best phrase to, to learn is, excuse me, I have a problem. Can you help me? Because this allows the uh, the person you are speaking to to feel superior to you, which the French love doing if you are an American, <laughs> and, you will, and they will be enormously helpful. I found that true, but they might have been enormously helpful anyway. I don't know. <laughs> so. uh, see, I, because I know we, when we were prepping to go, it was our first time, and I, you know, I've heard all of the stereotypes. And, and honestly, we had a lovely time. I think we had one time when a waiter was very brusque with us, but like, otherwise everybody was super nice, but I guess oh, we yeah. were in the touristy places. Yeah. I know everyone I, I spoke to was lovely and, uh, uh, very helpful. And I, I, I don't know if my mother and I just looked like, uh, we were completely inept and about to be, uh, terribly lost so people went out of their way to help us or what but uh, i had you know people chasing after it's like no no you're on the wrong platform here come stand on oh okay thank you <laughs> and uh yeah they no, everyone was lovely so uh i've heard that uh that uh paris is the one where everyone is is rude but uh and that even parisians hate other parisians but i don't know if that's true or just a stereotype like about new york so right well, well, I think the stereotypes about New York tend to be pretty true. Often. I often, uh, like, I, I have known people who, who had marvelous experiences in New York and were like, yes, if you understand what being a New Yorker is like, it's we are all packed together like sardines, so we are all going to pretend each other don't exist so we don't go completely barking mad until the point where we need to recognize you exist. And then... <laughs> They are lovely, but uh, I I don't know. It it was it was a very expensive city. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. As, as as someone who did not grow up in, even near a large city, it was uh, it, having spent a few a few uh, different you know weekends now in a few large cities. It it throws me off. Like, how do people sleep with all the noise? <laughs> It's, uh, I, I think it's a skill that you acquire. And I mean, I, I have read all of the data and 100% if uh, 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 large cities are usually very uh, eco-friendly in terms of energy consumption and whatnot compared to uh, to smaller ones. You you share walls, so you, know, you don't lose heat the same way. You have mass transit. It, it's marvelous. I just think that a lot of us uh, do not have not learned the skill of living gracefully in a large city. Right, right. I, I think I've probably spent less than five years of my life living somewhere where I share a wall with somebody, which is, you know, part partly that's like, you know, as like as a grown adult, that's like, oh, that's a privilege. I can buy my own house and everything. Obviously, it's great. Um, but like, you know, as a kid, you kind of yeah, that's just kind of how you are raised and the way that you end up being and 
And man, I remember the first time I went to Chicago, I was terrified for like four days straight. Everything was so fast. It was so big. It was so loud. I mean, in fairness, driving in Chicago is terrifying, even if it's not your first time. I have I have basically arranged my life for the last 20 years to avoid ever driving in Chicago again. <laughs> and uh, so far, it's working out for me. That's <laughs> <laughs> probably a good call. Hey, Page Break listeners. Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. So I was curious about, because you have a lot of experience, you do you do writing, you do art, um, illustration. I was kind of curious if there is a, um, if there is a place creati- creatively that you are the most comfortable. That's interesting. Uh, I really like doing comics um, because I, I feel like it's, I don't know if it's if I'm most comfortable there so much as that I feel like people will will uh, readers will give you so much emotionally in a co- uh, with a comic uh, more so than with a, a single piece of art or even with a book like I've written uh, I've written lots of books uh, of course and but the engagement you get with a comic is just a whole nother level I don't know why that is I I love that that said. Uh, Drawing a comic is exhausting, and having done an eight hundred page web comic, I uh, yeah, that is uh, that is a lot, and I I don't feel the need to do that again. Uh, and I, having illustrated a lot of children's books, there was a point where I just burned out completely on art, and I'm sort of starting to get back into that. So, uh, I mean, comfort it, writing is nice because I can just write that. Uh, they walked into a cathedral and if I'm trying to do a comic, I'm like, damn you passed me. Now I have to draw a cathedral. Uh, so uh, I think writing is, is easier than uh, having to draw in, in terms of what you can get away with, but there's just something visceral about comics that, uh, that I love. And so I keep occasionally wandering back and finding new ways that involve me drawing less <laughs> as as somebody with zero artistic skill i um i i i'm always kind of amazed and jealous of people that have the ability to draw because i because there's something that w- when you know when you're writing a big fat epic fantasy novel you you have to you have to craft something you know, at the very beginning that will engage the reader and pull them in. And you kind of have to, you have to hope that you will say something, your characters will do something, um, or you'll describe the world in a very beautiful way that, that really speaks to people and pull people in. Um, and it, and it feels like, it feels like you have to get someone's attention and keep it for like at least a half hour to be able to really get them involved. And uh, something I've always loved as a consumer of art 
and uh, and things like comics and stuff is that I know the moment I glance at a page whether I'm going to be interested in like a comic book or something like that because because art it, like you know the way the lines are drawn the way the characters interact you know the the framing all of that stuff like it's it's something that like my brain kind of picks up in the blink of an eye and says that's very pleasing now I would like to learn about the story. Yes. And it seems so much faster. It, it somehow it, uh, I, I think, like I said, it, it, something about the, the reader buy-in with comics is so immediate and intense. And I, I don't know why that is, uh, but it is. And I, I think it's wonderful. I, I, I wish I could tap into that for books too. That would be great. Uh, but alas, not, not so much. <laughs> Now, something I was wondering about, because you have done both traditional publishing and self-publishing, and I was I was very curious because you know self-publishing in the in the writing world, as you probably well know, is is already a very complicated issue. You know, there's oh, yeah. you, you can talk about the business side with the kind of the race to the bottom in terms of price and all of that stuff, and and something I've always kind of wondered about, especially in terms of stuff like web comics is that there is like this built-in assumption from the consumer, you know, including me at times, where if I want to look at a webcomic, I should be able to pull it up, read the entire backlog at once for free, and that's just a thing. I can do that at my computer. And I, I'm that's got to be really, I don't know, is that very frustrating when you're trying to put out like something that that honestly people should be paying money for? <laughs> Uh, it's, I, I am not frustrated by it anymore, I suppose, because this is, this is a thing we, we went through the, the sort of the dawn of web comics and we worked out a lot of this stuff in like, uh, the early two thousands, pretty much, uh, there, and, and I was on sites that were subscription only and that were, you know, the, uh, or the first, you know, the daily is free, but to read the archives, you have to pay us and whatnot. And I remember microtransactions are going to revolutionize webcomics and whatnot. And it turned out virtually none of that was true. And so it at the time, I think it, there were a lot of growing pains and a lot of people like hitched their wagon to models that turned out not to be viable. The, uh, the one website I was on, in fact, the creator uh, said to me once, I'm uh, towards the end. He's like, I'm sorry. You trusted me that this was the way that uh, web comics were going to work. And it turns out it isn't. And I was like, I admire that you just flat out admitted that. Nope. This business model does not work. And that's okay. Uh, yeah. It's, it's weird. Uh, I, I, it wouldn't work for books the same way for whatever reason. Like if the whole book, I mean, if the whole book was free, there are still people who would pay for it. But I think maybe not as many. And I don't know why um, with webcomics, uh, there are lots of people who will support you on Patreon usually. Uh, there are uh, merch is where all the money is. When I sort of got out of doing webcomics after I finished Digger, uh, I was going, I just don't know if I want to dedicate my life to hauling merch from convention to convention. This This seems... This seems like maintaining inventory is exhausting. And uh, there are occasionally points where I am like, I could go down this road again and I would become a person who handles merch or I could do something else. <laughs> well, and, and I think there are, there are some people, some creators 
who actually really thrive on having other parts of their business to fiddle with, you know, like merchandise and, um, you know, running their store and all of that kind of stuff. Oh, absolutely. There are people who love reading the contracts from the, from the publisher and going through it themselves. And, you know, I am glad those people exist and hope they are extremely happy. Right. But, but you're not one of them. Oh God, no, no. I, my agent uh, has a lawyer. Uh, my agent reads it. I say, tell me what it says. And she says, it's, this is good. And it says this. And I'm like, okay, say yes or say no or whatever. <laughs> I, I've been very lucky that my main income has only come from three different contracts so far in a, in a, about a 10 year career, give or take. And, uh, and, and so I've only really had to read three contracts. Oof. And then when it comes to all the foreign stuff, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm around maybe 20 or something like that languages and all of those. I just leave that to my agent. You know, that's their job. That's what they get their cut for. I'm not going to look at that. Oh yeah. When I started doing self-publishing, uh, I was like, I you know told my agent, I, I am self-publishing. Is that okay? I know this kind of cuts you out of the loop, but and she was like, when they come for the foreign rights, you send it to me and we'll handle it then. And they come for the foreign rights. And I'm like, here, yeah, go take, please, whatever they want. I've had the exact same conversation with my agent of, uh, of just, Hey, I want to do this other thing. Are you cool with that? And she's like, yeah, fine. You do your thing and we'll do your other thing. And you know, the thing that she handles still, you know, uh, encompasses like, 85 90% of my income so she's not threatened too much there. Oh yeah, and uh our audiobook rights are cuz I, I know there are there are self publishers who want to handle their audiobooks and again, I admire greatly their willingness to do so. I'm like uh, uh they'll pay me money so they can make an audiobook and then people stop asking me if there's an audiobook. Yes, please. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that that's something that often gets kind of um, often kind of, it kind of gets glossed over in in the, the the constant fight between the people who really like traditional publishing and the people who really like self publishing is that there's so much nuance and so many different ways you can tackle these things that it's fine to be able to say hey, I really like doing the nitty gritty. I'm going to do it myself versus saying, I don't want to touch that. I'll pay somebody else to do it. Yeah, I uh, even my self-pub stuff, I have no problem doing the eBooks now. I mean, that was a hard one fight. But when it comes to people are like, can we get a print copy of this? I'm like, oh, Jesus, I you can't make me learn InDesign. You, you, you cannot make me deal with, with Ingram. And fortunately, a small press that I knew, uh, I, I was hanging out with, and I was like, yeah, I, I, we, we were at a convention, actually, in the art show, like, at the reception, getting hammered. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I just don't want to deal with it. And they're like, you know, we could do that for you. And I'm all, okay, that sounds amazing. Why don't we do that? Now they handle all of my, you know print versions of my self-pub stuff. And I am delighted they get the money for that because I don't have to deal with it. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's been lovely. I, I had a, I had an experience where I was just getting into, I was just really solidifying my career, starting to feel really confident in where I was and was thinking about doing self-publishing. And, and I went on vacation up to a, a friend of mine's parents lake house and his parents were there for the weekend, and one of their parents' friends was also there. 
And that friend said to me, oh, you're a, you're a pretty new author. That's so cool. You know that I own a, a printing business, right? Like a legitimately decent sized printing business. And he said, if you ever want to come walk through the tour, you just let me know. I'll give you a little tour. And, and then if you end up ever printing something, we'll print it for you. And, and so I took him up on the offer. And honestly, the quality of their work was really good. And they pretty much took care of everything. So I started just doing these small batch print runs of the novellas that I write on the side. And, and, and to this day, it's like, it's like eight years later. I still just once in a while, I order a batch of novellas from them. There's never an issue. They're always in really good quality. And I'm really pleased to not have to actually like deal with, you know, any of that other junk. Oh God. Yeah. The, uh, uh, the horror stories that you hear and every now and again, I mean, one slips through, I, I had someone email me and it's like, so I got a print copy of your, your book and I'm all okay. And they're like, and it's your book for about 20 pages. And then it's a, someone else's military sci-fi book. And I'm all, huh, <laughs> Oops. let me, let me, uh, let me hook up with the publisher and the, or the small press. And they're like, yeah, that's that's a printing error, and we we cannot fix that. But we can send you a a replacement copy. Uh, yeah, sorry, and you're at the mercy of the guy who's throwing the lever on the machine at the end of the day. So it's and so many small presses have closed over the years of our small printers, rather uh, that uh, printing is now you know a huge problem uh, everyone's all well you should print this here and it's you know a, a lot of printing got outsourced to china and uh, it's a big thing for comics uh printers is that you you can't find one there uh in the u.s or and occasionally like i think there was one in canada for a while but it's it's been a huge problem and um yeah so yeah printing is a a scary world full of its own problems like uh there's been a paper shortage for a while which good lord right and it's and it's one of those things that we totally take for granted like like i i work in an industry that depends upon printing and i totally take it for granted you know like there's something in the back of my brain that says We've been doing this for centuries. Surely all the kinks have been worked out and there will never be issues. <laughs> That's not true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, not so much. So we were talking a little bit about merch um, and kind of the, the kind of how you pay your bills as an artist. And I was curious if that still makes up much of your life. The kind of, because I know that, you know, printing books, um, hand selling things, is, is that something that you still do at all? Uh, very little. I, uh, I, before the pandemic, I was still going to conventions fairly regularly. And there was at least one that I would go to every year and sell art because I had been going there basically since the dawn of time. And, uh, I was just used to it. And uh, it, but I was making less and less money at it, uh, comparatively. And it was, almost like an, an arms race in getting the, the new merch that has the stuff that, you know, okay, now this year the hot thing is t-shirts. Okay. Now it's keychains. Now it's uh, laser engraved. Uh, I don't know, badges and stuff. And after a point I was just like, I can't keep up with this anymore. And then the pandemic happened and I, none of us went anywhere for a long time. And then I was like, I just don't want to sell the merch anymore. I wasn't, it wasn't a significant part of my income anymore. And 
I had outsourced a bunch of my art prints to uh, to Potico, so that because I was so tired of of running prints at home on my you know big ink drinking machine and having to go to the post office and whatnot, I was just like, yeah, I I make a lot less money on that, but uh, having it outsourced, but it's so much less stress. So yeah, I, I these days uh, pretty much all of my money is from books, and uh, and Patreon uh, still uh, gives me a, a fair chunk, but it's almost all books now. So if the book uh, industry ever collapses, I will probably be back at uh, at the convention with a tin cup weeping. But <laughs> yeah, you and me both. I I have I have no other skills other than making crap up. So. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, it's like I am. I am not fit for uh, uh, office jobs any longer. Not that I ever was, but I tried valiantly for a while. Now, before you went full time as a creative, what were you doing? <laughs> uh, I had the usual succession of uh, weird ass jobs, like that you get out of college. Um, I was receptionist at a vet for a while. Uh, I, through college, I was doing. I was uh, working the night shift at a deli. And uh, the sort of the people who will come in at midnight to get thinly sliced head cheese are a, an unusual breed. And then for a couple of years, I worked at Prudential Insurance, uh, like on one of the they had a class action lawsuit and they hired a bunch of people to sort it out. So I was just processing claims. And then I was at a streetlight outage hotline, which. When I was in I was in Minneapolis, and when a streetlight goes out, you they people call want to call somebody and tell them the lights out, and I was one of the people who took the call and was like, uh huh, uh huh, and where is it? Okay, we'll tell someone, and uh, some very interesting people will call the streetlight outage hotline and uh, inform you that the lights are going off when they walk under them. The FBI is tracing them. I was I was strictly forbidden to tell them that it was aliens or that it meant they were the Messiah. Um, uh, like my boss specifically told me I couldn't do that. And then for a little bit, I worked at a, a really terrible a startup game company. And after it folded, I was like, I guess I have to get another job. Wait, do I have to get another job? And then I was, you know, selling enough art and doing commissions and uh, it was. It started out mostly as art, and then kind of segued into art and writing, and then segued harder into writing. So, yeah. So, so where? How far into the process of making art and selling it were you when you were able to say, "Oh, look, I can actually make money off of this"? Uh, I it was. I was supplementing my income with it uh, pretty soon. It was. Um, uh, partly because I draw anthropomorphic animals and the furries were lovely people are, are still lovely people with it, with a huge, uh, will support the arts like, whoa. So if you take commissions and you can draw foxes, you can make money. So I was making, you know, like it, it would be like, okay, I'm making like a third of my income from commissions. And then it was sort of half. And then, you know, uh, I start taking more because I'm suddenly unemployed and, oh, look, that's, suddenly where all the money is coming from and okay, it seems to be working. So yeah. And uh, then somewhere in there, I uh, uh, sold a book and sort of accidentally, and uh, it just kind of snowballed from there. Yeah. That's, that's very cool though. Like being able to 
take that opportunity and run with it is it's a, you know, there's a lot spoken of, of, Oh, how do you become an artistic professional? How do you, you know, transition to being full time? Um, And, uh, but like a, a lot of that is just seeing the opportunity, getting the timing that for yourself down properly and just being able to, you know, kind of go whole hog into it. And it helped that I was at that point young enough that uh, I didn't, I wasn't panicked that I didn't have health insurance for quite a while kind of thing. And uh, uh, I was married and then I was divorced. And, uh, and then I realized that I had actually been making a lot of the money for a while. And uh, so that didn't go so badly, but the, yeah, there was a lot of, uh, it's feast or famine, you know, you're, you're always very close to the edge when you're creative. And uh, so the books were amazing because all of a sudden they were, I, I was happy to make 800 bucks in a month and cover rent. And the uh, books are like, here is your $15,000 advance. And I'm like, really? That's, that seems like a huge amount of money. <laughs> so right. Yeah. My, um, my first contract for my powder mage books was, I think the contract and of course over three books, over three big epic fantasies, that's still many years. But I think it was um I think it was about six or seven times what I had made the previous year. Yep. And and I just went, Oh, I'm quitting my job because my job sucks. I'm making twelve bucks an hour. Um and Oh yeah. And suddenly bam, I've got like a real I've got a suddenly I've got a career, but then the panic sets in of, oh wait. I have a career. I've got to actually treat it like a career and keep writing. Oh yeah, I, I was lucky in that because I had been doing uh, art commissions and whatnot, and the and the commissions were tied to the money that uh, I did not feel unemployed. Basically, when I was no longer working at uh, at a company, and uh, but yeah, there's that that I didn't have to like reshuffle my entire. Uh, mentality to when I started getting advances for writing, but uh, I know a lot of people. It's like w- a complete culture shock. Yeah, and it's a, it's a culture shock in a lot of ways. You know, one of those being that you suddenly don't have anybody looking over your shoulder. You know, there's um, you know there's some there's some kind of creative professions where you even if you're a freelancer, you know, you're talking to the people paying you on a regular basis. Yeah, the art director is still, you know, checking in and being like, well, I have this at the end of the week. Yeah. 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 But when when you're like writing, uh, especially with novels, like like I talk to my editor like three times a year. Yep. <laughs> so I I am so not accountable and and it can be really hard to deal with that. Yeah. Like uh, occasionally I'm like, if I just didn't write anything, no one would ask until November when the book is due. And uh, so it's basically my own my own horrible fear of disappointing people that motivates me. So uh, you know, oh God, if I miss the deadline, uh, something will explode. But yeah, if I didn't have the the crippling anxiety, then uh, God knows what would happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I definitely feel horrible guilt when I miss a deadline, and I I'm, I'm and I, I've. I've learned kind of how to talk to my editor and my agent about these things. Like early on, like I would just clam up and I wouldn't say anything at all until suddenly the deadline was there and they're asking for a thing and, and I'm panicked and trying to, you know, make up excuses. And, and thankfully I've done this long enough that if I, I can see a deadline missing a deadline from a ways out now and can just say, 
hey, this isn't going to happen. Let's reschedule for a few months away and we'll talk about it. Yeah, and and I've I've generally found that as long as you're like, and my editor's always been great with if I'm like, hey, uh, X happened, I'm not going to make this. Uh, can I get another month? It's it's rarely a problem, and it, usually they're like, you know, uh, yeah, the absolute final must have date is in fact Y, and I'm like, okay, I can I can definitely make it by Y, and usually as long as as we're all talking. It's not a problem. Occasionally I will send like a sort of state of the Ursula address, which is, uh, I am currently at X point on this. I'm working on the edits for this, this other, uh, you know, the other thing you bought, uh, here's my idea and everything's on track. So yeah, just want to let you know that things are going well. I, they don't necessarily need that, but it makes me feel better to send it. Well, and, and with these kind of, kind of, loose business kind of partnerships where you have a contract obviously and you are working together but you you don't spend a lot of time on that work together i think it's really important to have clear communication oh yeah yeah uh, and uh, i i it took me a while to discover that it was okay to say okay i tried writing this book that we had talked about me writing and it is not working can we come up with another idea because uh, which took a while until, you know, the point where I was selling books, where I was just selling them five books, say, instead of this particular book in front of me, and you bought that book in particular. No, you bought five books. And so then we'll be like, okay, what should book three be? Okay, well, I had this idea. All right, great, write that. And then I'll be like, no, wait, that idea sucked. And it just wasn't coming together. And uh, now I can be like, can we come up with another idea? And uh, they've always been great about brainstorming and helping me come up with another idea. So. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. So, so that's actually something that really fascinates me because I know a few different authors who have created that sort of relationship with publishers where they they sell them um, books. They don't sell them they don't sell them a particular book. They sell them books, and so they've got that under contract that they'll write them a book that's roughly a, this number of words in roughly this genre. But beyond that, it's kind of in development, and that. 
I, does that not stress you out like crazy? It can. Uh, when I uh, tour, when I uh, first contracted with them, uh, what happened actually is I had a novella lying around. And novellas, as I'm sure you know, are what do you do with a novella? And uh, so what I had been doing was basically uh, doing collections of short stories and using a novella as sort of an anchor on that. But I was like, eh, wait, Tor has an open submission for novellas thing. They're publishing novellas. I should send them one. And then like about six hours later, I was like, wait, I have an agent. I don't have to wait oh, for the open submission period. And so I, I go to my agent. I'm like, can you send them one of these? And my agent's like, yes, you, you have an agent. That's what I do. So she sends them a novella and they come back and are all, yes, we like this novella very much. We would like that. And we would also like two novels and another novella, if that's okay with you. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Sounds good. But then, uh, and, and it was again, the, the practically sight unseen thing. They were all, yes, we will buy this particular novella. And then actually it was three novels for that one. It was one novella, three novels. They're like, so give us, you know, three more novels as well. And I agreed. And then it was the way I write is that I will start something. I will write 10, 15,000 words. And then I will usually send it to my agent with like, a, see if you can find somebody to pay me to finish this. <laughs> I, I do not outline. Outlines are an instrument of torture. Uh, the end of one of these 15,000 words is usually like a paragraph synopsis that's like, this happens and this happens. And there's a really cool scene here. And the goodbye guys win and everyone lives happily ever after. And it, it, it's often just about that level of, of quality. And so my editor at Tor, Lindsay Hall and I were going back and forth for like a month where I would just, I, I emptied out my hard drive of all of the books I had started and was just sending them to her and going, you like this one? How about this one? What do you think of this one? And some of them, she was like, I like this. This is going somewhere. I want to see more. Uh, some of them, she's like, no, this isn't working. Uh, at least one, she was like, let's put a pin in this one, which I have since learned is there is no way in hell we are publishing a book that starts with, uh, there is literally a dead baby in the first sentence. But... It was all about changelings, and and there were changelings everywhere in the city. And the 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 mother who, who's the hero is like uh, is not sure if she has postpartum psychosis or if she's seeing actually seeing that all of these infants have been replaced with changelings all over town. And so it's this really it, it's messed up. I admit. Uh, someday I will write that book. But yeah, she wanted to put a pin in that one. She said it was a little too sad for. Uh, for that, and I'm like, and okay, yeah, I understand that is that is specialized fare, but uh, God, it would be so good though. Um, and finally, like, I was I was hitting the dregs, and I said to her, I was like, "This is completely a hail mary pass." But what do you think of this one? She's like, "I love that one. Write that one." And uh, that was Nettle and Bone, which came out uh, a couple of months ago. And I'm like, "Oh, yay!" Uh, but yeah, it can be very stressful. Or uh, she had, uh, or another one um, they bought. And they were like, we love this book, but this can't be the first book we publish by you because the heroine is, uh, it, it starts as uh, uh, the, the heroine is like 16 at the time the adventures happen. So it's going to read as YA, even though it's not a YA book. And once you get pigeonholed as a YA author, it's impossible to drag you back out, particularly if you're, uh, if you have a female author name. So uh, 
we would like this to be like the second or third book by you we publish. And I'm like, I that is totally legit. I respect that. But now I have to write two more books kind of thing. So, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it can be very stressful. I uh, uh, like uh, I later had a Nightfire, uh, the horror publisher, Tor Nightfire, uh, did the same kind of deal where they're like, we really want your stuff. We will buy two novellas and two novels from you. And uh, so the second novel is the one most recently where I was like, yeah, this thing I thought was going to work is just not working. I have this other horrible idea. And they were like, yeah, we like that horrible idea. You should write something like that. At one point I was uh, uh, watching Midsummer on uh, and tweeting about it. And they were like, do you think you could write a horror novel based on Midsummer? We were enjoying your tweets. And I'm like, let me think. No, <laughs> I would love to, but no, it turns out that one's just not going to gel. I, I gave it a try, but no. Do, do you find that you, do you find that you enjoy writing for uh, a, a younger audience or, or an older audience more? Uh, I, I enjoy writing for an older audience more. It's, this is one of those weird things when I am good at writing for kids, but I don't enjoy it as much. Uh, there were a lot of, uh, I, I wrote a bunch of kids books. My, my first uh, published books were, were all for kids. And I, uh, I wrote, uh, let me think, uh, something like 18 kids books in remarkably short order. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I sold the first one in 2008 and I think the last one came out in like 2018 or something. It was so yeah, like 18 books in 10 years, uh, which that, that'll take it out of you a bit. And there were my voice, the, the sort of authorial voice worked great for writing for kids. But because I sound the same no matter what age range I'm writing for, as it turns out. But I, my editor kept being like, you can't do this in a children's book. Uh, no, you are not allowed to burn the castle down at the end of the book. We, we do not teach children that arson solves their problems. And I'm like, arson solves a lot of problems, though. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I, I joke that every, uh, every children's book author is a frustrated horror writer because every time they tell you you cannot do a thing in a book, it, it like... It, lodges in your chest and just compresses until it is like diamond and finally you erupt with i am going to write a book for grown-ups and i am going to put every goddamn messed up thing i have ever thought of in there and no one will stop me and uh so yes the horror novels uh, are uh, uh, did very well and <laughs> Yeah. Do, do you do you look at your fiction as an outlet for kind of you know something inside of you? I don't. That's the funny thing. Uh, other than the the you know my editor told me I couldn't do this bit. Uh, like a lot of horror authors or a lot of authors will be like, yes, you know, I have this inner darkness and I release it on the page, and I don't have any inner darkness. I I have I am I am basically the same all the way through. Uh, but I do come up with many things that seem very logical to me uh, are I am told by my editors kind of horrific. And <laughs> so like uh, an example, a fantasy novel that uh, came out a year or two ago called Paladin's Grace or no Paladin's Strength was this one. And uh, a throwaway set of characters were uh, I was like rabbits would be a great hive mind. 
you know, if they, because they live in a war and they're communal, so we'll just make them a hive mind. That's great. And that was fine. But then I was like, okay, if the rabbits need to communicate with humans and uh, they would need like a speaker. Okay. Now, but rabbit throats aren't like designed to make human speech. There's a lot of stuff that goes into that. So they would need to like grow a specific speaker rabbit who has all of these alterations made to like their tongue and palate and throat. And okay, but that's going to make them a really top heavy, weird rabbit. And they're going to sound horrifying. But still, that's what would happen. So there's a scene in, in my nice little fantasy romance where the the rabbits, basically, the, the hive mind rabbits drag one of their number out who has this massively sort of goitered throat and who begins squealing, you know, in this kind of dying rabbit shriek that and speaking English or, you know, whatever language they are. And all the, the humans are like, oh, no, nope, nope, that is messed up. But it was all entirely logical and followed logically. <laughs> and uh, and lots of readers have told me that was really, really kind of messed up. And I'm like, but it obviously this is how it would work if you had to have a sentient rabbit hive mind that wanted to communicate with people. And uh, yeah, so no, my, my husband does, uh, who is my beta reader of, of all of my uh, books, uh, will get to points in horror and be like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and I, I, I'm just glad it's out on the page and not fermenting inside your brain. <laughs> see, see, I'm always trying to look for shortcuts and things. So like, you know, the, 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 the rabbit communicating problem, I just be, Oh, magic, magic. It's fine. That's all I'm going to explain. Yeah. I mean, that, that would work, but I, it, just seem i mean it obviously must have been magic that allowed them to evolve a rabbit that could do that it was you know i was just like let me meet the magic halfway there right yeah yeah well and everybody everybody kind of approaches that sort of creative how am i going to solve narrative problems everybody approaches that differently Oh yeah, yeah. If you if you, I mean, it's like the joke about people stealing ideas. If you give one idea to ten writers, you get twelve different versions back. Right, <laughs> right. Like like the biggest artistic thief in the world is it's Bob Dylan. It's the guy who who everybody now emulates. He stole all of his crap from you know everything that came before him. Oh yeah, yeah. Or you know fairy tale retellings. Like none of us invented Beauty and the Beast. Uh, Although, incidentally, if you read, like, the sort of original document of Beauty and the Beast, as far as we can tell, it is a 17th century French uh, fairy tale, and it is, like, 150 pages long, and Beauty and the Beast is the first, like, third, and then all the rest is fairy cult politi court politics. It is really bizarre, and sort of... Uh, one of the, the key factors that threw me is that for some reason, beauty has monkey butlers in that version. <laughs> well, and, and we're, we're coming full circle to some of the crap that was written a while back was so weird. Oh God. Yes. Uh, the, the, the mouse, the bird and the sausage, the fairy tale, if you've ever seen it is uh, it's a fairy tale. And one of the characters is a talking sausage and she's the cook and she cooks by slithering around in the frying pan to season the food with with her like juices and it's i'm like okay talking sausage that's kind of what 
It's so strange. Yep. Well, I have been keeping you for quite a while now, but we like to wrap up every episode uh, by asking a bit of a left field question for every guest, which is, what is the last thing that you ate that blew your mind? Oh, the last thing I ate that blew my mind. Uh, I was at the coast and they had this uh, tuna tartar tower and it was it was raw tuna and uh avocado and kind of like a very chunky guacamole and this uh it was almost like an eel sauce kind of glaze over it it was freaking amazing and uh not anything i could ever replicate at home but because i like it was uh, stacked like little rings on this tower and i don't know what the glaze was but it was amazing uh, so okay i'm i'm always a little bit I'm always thrown when people eat raw meat. Is it not? Does it not kind of squeak you out a little bit? Not, raw fish does not bother me at all. Uh, like red meat, yeah, that weirds me out. But uh, uh, raw fish, I, I can't eat cooked fish. Cooked fish, like it just tastes really fishy. But I will devour sushi all day long. I can do raw fish, but not. Uh, but uh, yeah. When when uh, we were in Paris. My uh, my publicist kind of wandered around, did some touristy stuff with us, and was really great host, really awesome. But she ate uh, beef tartare for every single meal, and it just damn it really threw me off. Uh, my my husband would absolutely eat beef tartare. I I won't go that far. Uh, like yeah, red meat wigs me out, but uh, yeah, fish doesn't bother huh. me. Oh, that's funny because I I grew up in a household where my dad loved getting beef rare but he never but my mom refused to cook anything rare she would she cooked everything uh, I, I won't say to death but pretty close to it yeah and uh and so you know whenever we were at a restaurant my dad would order veal or order a steak with you know like rare and and but like but like everything we ate at home was like very cooked and so i got used to that texture and i was probably 30 or so before i <laughs> Could really eat medium rare beef, and and I still can't eat rare. It's just a little too much for me. I I it has to be at least hot in the middle. Like I don't mind pink, but uh, if if it's uh, if I get the impression that a good vet could get it up and around, uh, I yeah, that's that's not going to work for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's perfect. That was writer and artist Ursula Vernon. Thanks again to Ursula for taking the time to chat. You can find links to Ursula's social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you're listening to this via Patreon, please stick around for bonus chat during the epilogue. Special thanks to Elijah, Ivor Gulickson, James Clark, Jennifer Johnson, Jay Sunnell, Kyle Anderson, Sexton Hardcastle, and Talon for their backing on Patreon.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.